I uh, ran across this week reading a novel, a quote. Um, yeah, this is a quote that was just, this is a detective novel. It has nothing to do with the message. It has nothing to do with um, much of anything, but it leaped off the page at me. I wanted to share this quote with you because um, it, it just caused such a reaction within me. There, there's a lady who's being questioned by a detective. She, who, who suspects that her son committed a crime. And she says, we're put on this planet for a few years, just us and our shadows, Detective Reed. Maybe there's someone up there pulling the strings, I don't know. Anyone who tells you he does know, wants your money, or is trying to get elected to something. I'm, I am taking a moment to, to put this quote up there, because I want to say something to you this morning. I don't want your money, and I'm not trying to get elected for anything, but I do know, and I'm here to tell you that I know that there is someone up there. So this is, this is garbage as far as I'm concerned. When I read it, I just reacted to it, and I said, that's not true. It's not true that everybody who's saying they know there is a God and they're quite certain, absolutely, unequivocally certain and sure of it, uh, is trying to pull something on you or trying to get something from you. That's not true. Okay, that's good enough. Thank you. Uh, We are all familiar with this hymn Charles Wesley wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We love it. We sing it often. And in that, there's a phrase where he says, referring to Jesus, referring to the the incarnation, referring to the birth of God in the flesh of a man, a person. He says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. By the way, incarnate or incarnation is not a word you're going to find in the Bible. You'll find it in the hymn books and the Christmas carols and the theology dictionaries. It's an English word from a Latin root, which simply came to be to try to explain the term itself is simply an attempt to explain the reality that somehow God was inculcated into carne means flesh, muscle. But uh, chili con carne is chili with meat. And so uh, God in, in meat in flesh, in fleshed, is simply the, the term that's simply a descriptive term. It's not a term in the Bible, but it's a real term, a meaningful term, this word incarnation. <clears throat> I am struck by this, and that's what I want to talk about. He goes on to say in his next line, Pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And that's the thought I want to think of this morning, that, the, the, that God was pleased as a man to dwell with men. That God somehow pulled this off, that he was veiled in flesh. What does it mean to be veiled? To be veiled means you're, you're a bit inaccessible, you're a bit invisible, you're veiled, you're hidden. But God wasn't hidden in voodoo or secret code so that we would miss it. And we just read right 
down the page and not even realize what we just read. That was not how God was veiled. God was not veiled in wood or stone so that we would know it's there, but we wouldn't have access to it because we couldn't bust through this vault wall in which God was. God was not veiled by time or distance so that we could not really be certain that it really happened. Uh, it, we could not really be certain that it was, it, was, it was something that was not among us as human beings. God was veiled, but Charles Wesley says he was veiled in flesh. So that's something that could be seen, and that's something that could be touched and questioned and something that could fill those folks there as well as us today with delight and with inspiration and with awe because he is the incarnate deity. And though he is hidden and though it is, there is a mystery, tremendous mystery to this incarnation, at the same time, at the same time, it's in, it's in something that we understand. So there's this enigmatic thing about the incarnation that I can't fathom it at all, and yet it's a baby. And I can fathom that to a, a degree because I was one of them. I have one of those. And so there, there's a veil, but there's flesh. The flesh we identify with, and it helps us and under, it helps us in penetrating the veil, although we never fully will. We never, ever, ever will comprehend. Um, I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and this is the best thing that came to my mind. I'll just throw it out there. Some of you may be mechanics. I know a couple probably here that are mechanics, and this won't apply to you. But to most of us, average people, it will. And that is this. <clears throat> Uh, let me ask you to start with, what's the difference between a car and, let's say, a wagon or uh, a utility trailer or a wheelbarrow or anything else that has wheels on like that? What's the difference between one of those things and a car? A motor. Yeah. How many of you comprehend motors? Everything about motors? A couple. There's a several, as I said, there'd be, there'd be a couple of us. Most of us say, a motor, oh yeah, that's a big mystery. <laughs> and the, and the, the newer model cars, by the way, it's more and more of a mystery. You just stand there and say, man, there's nothing, there's no moving parts anymore. It's all printed out of a, a printer, I think. And, and, uh, and it's, there's nothing to fix, there's nothing to comprehend, it's just there's this big block, and you don't know. But uh, even those who do um, are few. Most of us would say, well, I, if I had to go to California, I certainly wouldn't want to go on a wagon. I would want to go in a car. And if I said why, you would say, well, the car has a motor. It would actually get me there. And the truth is that though many of us do not fathom the intricate workings of a motor, of an engine... We do understand that from that one item that we do not understand, there flow many, many essential ingredients. And so we get in a car and we say, wow, that motor not only engages the transmission and turns the wheels, but via belts hooked up, that motor runs 
uh, an AC system, and that feels nice. And that motor runs a power steering pump so that I can turn with ease in the curves. And that motor runs an alternator, and la la, I have lights, and I have radio, and I have windshield wipers, and I have all kinds of conveniences that the battery runs, but the alternator charges the battery, but the motor runs the alternator. And so it all comes back to the motor. And we say, we could say, I don't really understand an engine, but I know enough to understand that the engine makes everything else fall into place. That the engine makes sense out of the windshield wipers. You couldn't run a windshield wiper without a motor, but you couldn't run a motor without electricity. You couldn't have electricity without an alternator. You couldn't have an alternator without a motor. So it all goes back to the motor. So there's this quote I, I came across recently that stirred my thinking, and I, I want to get, get into that um, here, about the incarnation. And I thought it was such a... a a, a thoughtful and important and truthful quote. J.I. Packer, who was a, a professor up in Canada for years, he's passed away now. He said, the incarnation in itself is an unfathomable mystery. That's the motor to me, to a lay, guy, a lay person that's not a mechanic. I know there's pistons in there jumping around. I know there's oil in there splashing around. I know there's camshafts whirling and there's crazy stuff happening, but I, couldn't, I, I, I wouldn't know it. I couldn't fix it. It's an unfathomable mystery to me, the motor. But it makes sense of everything else in that car. Uh, most of us these days have this little black box we carry around. Something like this. Alright? How many of you comprehend satellites? That you fully comprehend all of the all of the waves and the different types of waves and the and the way that it, it all works up there, uh, way about twenty miles up in the air. Probably probably almost none of us actually understand satellites. Maybe the concept a bit, but really, could you fix one if it broke? Probably not. It's a little similar. I don't understand satellites at all. They are a huge mystery to me. But I know that on this little phone, the satellite not only enables me to talk to you over distance, it enables me to look at the weather. It enables me to get on GPS and have a map of where I'm going. It enables me to hook up to the internet and, and research and find things from all over. Those things... I do comprehend those things I, I use daily in my life. But I don't understand the big thing that makes them all happen, but I know one thing, if there wasn't a satellite, none of those things would make sense. If there wasn't a satellite, I would say GPS, and you would say, uh-huh, because it is that unfathomable mystery that puts everything else in its place. Just a bit like a motor with all the functions in a car. This is what this theologian is saying about this moment and this birth. You know, it's a, 
It's, it's a, it, is a, it truly is an unfathomable mystery. I want to just briefly mention a couple questions and the answers to them, which, in my way of thinking, go back to this incarnation, back to this plan and purpose that God had set up. First one, why did God create a people? We read about the promise to Abraham and the descendants of Abraham and all of the scuffling and all of the, all of the shuffling and scuffling through the years leading up to Christ. Of course, he was born from that people. Why did God create a people? Well, it boiled down to this. He wanted to send a person. So he had to start somewhere. He planned to come to our world. He couldn't just show up in his heavenly splendor. We'd just run away from him. We wouldn't even relate to him. We would not be able in any way to communicate with him. And so, it pretty well boiled down to the fact that if God was going to come down here, he had to do it in a way that we would relate to as human beings. And so, he started somewhere. He had to just kind of insert himself somewhere, and he grabbed this one fella out in the, out in the, out in the, out way out someday, one day somewhere by himself, and he said, "Abram, I want to make a deal with you." Me? Why? What? What's it going to be? Well, let's let's talk about the future. Let's talk about. It's descendants that are more than the stars. Uh, let's talk about a place and a people that I, will, that I will give to you. Let's talk about a perspective, Abraham. You see this, I have capitalized this word seed. Translations might use different words, but this is a pretty straightforward translation of Zerah in Hebrew. Seed, to your seed I will give this land. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 3. The promise is spoken to Abraham and his seed. The scripture does not say seeds, meaning many people. So when God told Abraham about all the stars and the heavens and he couldn't count them and this is how many descendants he'd have and this was his seed in the land and all this. When God said this, Paul says... Galatians 3. He wasn't even talking about all of those things. He was actually preparing for one thing. Seed. Singular. Just like the reference to Abraham was a singular word. To you and to your seed. And Paul jumps on that or he makes something out of that as something important. And says um, that... That this was God's avenue of beginning the process, of starting this process. And what he's saying here in this verse is that the covenant which was made with Abraham was not superseded or overridden by the law which was given to Moses. That was quite a controversy in Jesus' own day. Jesus dealt with people who were fans of Moses, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they didn't, they didn't accept him very well because he was more concerned about the covenant with God 
person to person, which, which it had started out with at Abraham, than he was the laws that had been given by Moses. And this put him in a lot of conflict. Paul's saying here is, what he's saying is, listen, the laws late, given later to a descendant of Abraham never superseded the covenant, the original idea, and the original reason that God called out Abraham. Second question, why did God initiate sacrifices uh, to those descendants of Abraham by which he was preparing both an environment for Christ to come as well as an inscripturated word that would be able to communicate about the fact that he was going to come to the world? Half of the Old Testament is these predictions and these prophecies about one who will come, about, about how and not just specific details, but about this general movement of God to come to history, not come upon history like an over, overrider, but come, to, come from within history, which is, of course, the idea of the incarnation. Why did God initiate sacrifices? Well, here's the reason. He wanted to forgive our human race. He wanted to forgive our planet and these people of Adam. He wanted to forgive us our sin. And there's many, many scriptures that talk about this. Here's one in Hebrews 10 in the New Testament that says the forgiveness, the actual, the actual banishment or dismemberment of sin could never happen through the, 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 through the bulls and the goats. That was a temporary circumstance or a temporary situation. Um, here's another one that he says... In Hebrews 10, I will remember your sin and your lawlessness no more. And then there will be no more need for any sacrifice. In other words, if I can say it like this, if sin didn't matter, then sacrifices would never have been necessary. But sin did matter and God was going to give a solution. He was going to send a solution. However, the time for that was future and justice just couldn't put things on hold. And so... The larger point is that the sacrifices brought, bought time until the worthy sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice could come. Sacrifices covered sin, but Calvary removed, the Old Testament sacrifices covered sin, but Calvary removed the power of sin. And it was all a preparation um, for that. Sacrifices established a pattern and a principle and a picture that an innocent something or other had to suffer for the guilt or had to pay the price of the guilt of something that uh, of someone that was guilty. That, that this had to happen, and sacrifices gave to us that understanding, uh, which is explaining to us why God would come in a human body. Okay, number three: Why did God prepare a virgin? As, as we believe that the crucial hinge point of the entire coronation is the message of Isaiah who said a virgin will conceive or the message of the angel who told this same thing to Mary when she raised this issue and this question. Um, the reason this was so crucial is that God needed to have a person here he needed to indwell a person. He needed to be a person. If he's going to come among people, he had to be done in a way that was a person, both fully divine, not a hybrid together, both fully divine 
and also fully human. And this is the part that J.I. Packer says we cannot grasp, we cannot fathom how it is that God could pull this off. But we do know and we do understand that this is how God came to the world. The nature of God, think about this, the nature of God implanted within a human mother. I'm going to say that again. The nature of God implanted within a human mother. <clears throat> the nature of God nurtured through the process of development and birth by a human mother. Jesus had only one parent. But understand something, while it was Mary's blood that supplied the nourishment for this fetus or this infant, this baby that was developing within her, while it was her blood that it, uh, supplied the nourishment from that, Jesus was not conceived from the humanity of Mary any more than he was of Joseph. Mary did not supply an egg that was fertilized by God. Because it was, that would be some sort of a, of a hybrid situation. In other words, God didn't keep Joseph out of the picture because Joseph was a sinner and Mary was a saint. And therefore, it was okay. He could somehow imperfectly plant his nature within uh, Mary because she did not share in the sin of the fallen state of Adam. That is not true. Uh, although... In the Roman Catholic Church, it is taught as a, a principle because there's no other, there's, there, it has to be one way or the other. It has to be that either Mary herself wasn't human, or there's a, there's a, there's an, a miracle here that happened that we don't have any, any way of, of, we don't have any way not only of documenting, we don't have anything to relate to that's ever happened to this, like this before. Mary was also a sinner. And if the humanity of Jesus was, was inherited from the body of Mary, then he would not have been shielded from fallen nature. In other words, in one sense, I'll just say it this way, you can think about this. God didn't need a human mother anymore and he needed a human father. The mother of Jesus was not the initiator. She was the incubator who somehow took this nature of God and carried it into fulfillment and fruition as a human being. And this, believe me, was as much of a shock and a, and a, and a, um, this is as much of a shock and a, a mystery to Mary as it is to us. She said, when the angel came to her and said, Mary, you're going to have a baby. This is in Luke chapter 1. Mary said, I don't think so. Virgins don't have babies. And you remember what the angel said to her? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. A lusantai. Um, it means to be turned loose. It means, it, it, it means um, not coming in with questions, okay? The, the Holy Spirit will, will be... Uh, 
will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, this isn't a cooperative effort, Mary. Um, this isn't a partnership. This isn't a symbiotic relationship. This is God coming down within you, Mary. And you have very little to do with it. You are the human carrier. You are the human connection. But it's a mystery. And it has to be, it has to be that the work of God because it has to avoid all the problems that you, Mary, or Joseph would bring. And so... This Holy One, the angel said in Luke chapter 1, this Holy One will be called the Son of God. This one will be called the Holy Son of God. The word holy, hagios, means different. It means unique. It means not just sacred or, or, or honored. It means very different. That's what holy means. So, so the angel said to Mary, this one will be called hagion, pneuma, two, you. This one will be called the holy, the unique, the different son of God. It, it, it wasn't, it, it, was, it was a case of being overwhelmed. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the, the, the divinity somehow took up residence and transformed into human as well. Um, Look at this scripture from Galatians 4. Jesus was born. It never says he was born of a man, and we're aware of that. There's scriptures in the Old Testament that seem to verify also the direction that this is going. He was born. He would be born of a woman, and he was. He was, he was carried by a woman. I'm simply saying that even though Jesus was fully human, he was human because he developed within a human, but he did not share... In, in the same way we share progression from our parents. It is inconceivable that anyone born into the human race by natural means could escape the human condition. There's just no way. God had to do something different. It, it had to be. There had to be. The, this is why I say, and this is why J.F. Packer says, that the, the incarnation is a mystery that's beyond our ability to fathom, but it has to be. There is no other explanation, and yet it is the explanation that makes sense of the other things that, that we have. You know, um, consider this. Jesus frequently went to the temple. This is the only way that Jesus could escape the sinfulness of our nature or the fallenness of our nature. Jesus frequently went to the temple. We read about it a lot in the Gospels. Do you ever read about Jesus offering a sacrifice? Never. He didn't need to. Because he was not, he was above, he, was, he, he did not share in the sinful nature with which we were born. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But never do we, pray, never do we read of Jesus praying to be forgiven. Never does he ask God to forgive him that we have any kind of record of. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you, plural, you people, you as a human race, must be born again. But he never applied that to himself. Because he understood the difference. In fact, 
there was a time, this is an amazing, in John chapter 8, this is an amazing moment to me. Jesus said to these people who were being so petty with him, he said, okay, let me ask you a question. Can any one of you convict me, accuse me, prove of me a sin? Anybody? Now, you know, it tells us of their hostile reaction to that. But they couldn't. They never, there was no answer for that question. There isn't a one of us in this room, I don't believe, who would welcome, who would openly take that question and ask it of, a, of an open group of people. Any of you convict me of a sin? Can any of you uh, point to something inconsistent in my life? Well, I wouldn't want to ask that for a second. I don't suppose any of us would. Jesus did ask that. Christ was not a human who became God. He was God taken on the nature of a human. I'm going to skip that scripture just to move on here. He took on our human nature in such a way that he could bear the consequences of our sin. He was, as I said, he was not a human who became God. He was God taking on the nature of a human and he took on every single part and piece and perspective of our human nature except our fallenness into sin. And that was avoided by using a human at the same time by coming as God himself. Here's two short statements from Scripture. This, these aren't quotes. These are just synopsis of what that Scripture says. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that's what the first one says. There was no sin so that his death could be credited as paying for all sin. This, this is something that nobody else has. And I don't say that boasting over other religions. I'm simply saying this is part of what, this is part of the, has the ring of truth to it. That, that, that God would act thus. And, you know, I've read many of other legends and religions and their other mythology and so forth. And it's always God angry at people. And it's always God coming down if he does to swipe them like we would with a flash water. Uh, 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 like you would swipe a bug with a flask water, or, or it's God getting intrigued and involved with human affairs and rescuing somebody and taking them up to heaven so that he can somehow consort with them there. It's, it's never anything like this. Never. That God would just somehow enter the stream of his creation in a way that he could rescue his creation, not from him own, his own self and not from his adversary, but from his justice. From the, from the demands of his own justice in a way that his justice could be satisfied. Why did God demand the cross and the grave? Because he planned to use his power over death. He planned to prove his power over death. But here's the problem. You can't prove victory over death without entering into death. How could you possibly 
be victorious over something that you never encountered, that you never entered into, that you never dealt with. So God had to, had to die. Only death, only humans die in that sense. So he took on this flesh so that he could enter into this weakness to prove that Satan's power is death, but his power is life. And this is, this is proved through the, through the incarnation. And so I'm just using this as a figure of speech. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. That basically God wanted to rescue us from death. But he had to breach. A, a, he had to blast a hole in the, in the wall. So that we have a place to crawl out through. I'm, I'm, I'm just using that as a, as a word picture. But this is what he did. Jesus, it says, is the first fruits of those who fell asleep. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. For us, this is what it's saying there. And it also says that he's the first fruit of those. In other words, he did it. He paved the way. He opened the hole. Now it is available for us to do. And that it is through a man. Notice this. That this resurrection is through a man that this hope comes to us. But this man was not an ordinary man. He was actually God clothed in the flesh of a man. He was truly a man. But more. And if, if you don't understand that, or you can't wrap your head around that, then basically you're proving my point. And you're proving what J.I. Packer said that I'm trying to, to, to hang on to here. And that is that it doesn't make sense to any of us. It's beyond us. It's bigger than we are. But guess what? It makes the other things fall into place and, and, and makes sense. There could be no proof that a human person can escape death until a human person did escape death. That's what Jesus did. Why did God inspire the writing of the Bible? I'm done here. I just wanted to mention this, that basically we're saved. It tells us in Romans 10 how beautiful are the feet of those who... Well, I think I put that... Yeah, look at this verse. There had to be a, a, a record of this. There had to be an explanation of this. There had to be an expression of this. There had to be a, a teaching of this made available to men so that they could call on Christ as their Savior. And so it says, look, this is how people are saved. They're saved by hearing the preaching. But the preaching comes from reading. The reading of the record of what God did. And so God inspired men to write down or record or make a record of what happened so that somebody could read it, somebody could preach it, somebody could travel with it and take it elsewhere and bring this good news around the world, throughout history. That's why we have the Bible, for that reason, that God wanted the, His incarnation to the world to be proclaimed to people, and he wanted it to be explained to people. And that's, and that's really how it is that, and why it is that we, um, that we got the scripture that we have today. It's a, it, it, is, uh, it is unfathomable, just as the motor of your car may be. But it not only can get you to California, it can get you there in great style, and great comfort, and having a lot of fun along the way because of the comprehensive nature of the motor. 
You know, um, in Latin, there's a phrase. If you're an attorney, you've probably heard this phrase many times. If you've dealt with an attorney, you might have heard it. You might know it anyway. There's a phrase that's used in a lot of legalese. Sine qua non. Without which not. It just means this. If something is a sine qua non, it is an absolutely critical, absolutely necessary ingredient. If you don't have it, you don't, your product falls apart. Sine qua non. Without which not. In other words, if you didn't, without that thing, everything falls apart. That's what it means. That's what the incarnation is. It is the sine, sine qua non of Scripture. It is that which, though unfathomable to us, holds everything together for us. And it is the miracle that we celebrate. Heavenly Father, it's a, it was a rose blooming, Isaiah said. It was a process, like a, like a seed puts itself down into a soil and produces a plant and a, and a flower. The process of you coming among us and coming from within us was long and laborious, but it was well planned for and thought out and prepared for. It affects all of us. It is the story and the explanation and the truth of our understanding and following Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in it today. We thank you for this miracle. Though we cannot understand it any more than perhaps we understand the working inner workings of the motors of our car, we can, we, can ride on, we can ride on and rejoice in all that it provides for us and makes possible for us. In Jesus' name, amen.